A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 13 The Rise of Communist China Casting a Dark Shadow Across the Earth the first section, the most dangerous nation on earth. The rise of communism in China was once a distant phenomenon of little importance for Westerners, but that has changed as China has rapidly become a global superpower, aggressively expanding its international role. It has now replaced the Soviet Union as the most dangerous communist nation in history and is using its massive wealth to buy influence and advance its agenda. The Soviets projected power and influence through supporting violent revolutions on the one hand and united front organizations on the other, including those advocating for an end to nuclear arms and war itself. The Chinese communists have not been able to adopt a similar strategy the attraction of Maoism has weakened as the revolutionary spirit of the last century has morphed into a less focused social and political activism. Now it's all about money. There are always those who are naive or willing to sell their souls for money, and the Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP, is masterful at using their newfound wealth to exploit this naivete and greed. In discussing the rise of communist China, it must never be forgotten that the CCP is a blood-drenched organization. As we have pointed out, it is responsible for the death of as many as 80 million of its own people, and the indescribable suffering of so many millions more, including persecuted religious and ethnic minorities. On July 1, 2021, the CCP celebrated its 100th anniversary without a hint of remorse for its record of unparalleled cruelty. New section. Capitalism saves communist China. The Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution both exacerbated the trenchant economic problems of communist China, which, like the Soviet Union, could not feed itself. It was only after the death of Mao in 1976 that the CCP figured out how to remain in power and avoid economic disaster. The main architect of this strategy was Deng Xiaoping, who became China's supreme leader in 1978. Over the next decade, he set the country on a new and prosperous course. The key to this success was simple, allow the Chinese people to own property. Although this policy directly contradicts Marxist theory, it relieved the restless and rebellious pressure of ordinary people seeking political change by channeling their energies into wealth creation for themselves and their families. The results have been dramatic. China has transformed itself from a third world economic backwater to the second largest economy in the world after the United States. It is far wealthier than the Soviet Union ever was and it has used its wealth to enforce control of its people 
while extending its political and economic reach to every corner of the earth. There are other features of communist China that make it a more powerful nation and greater threat than the USSR, and we will discuss them in this chapter. China's State Capitalism The nature of China's capitalist system is not the same as we are accustomed to in the West. In the Western model, corporations are independent of government ownership and or control, although they are regulated by government. In the Chinese model, the CCP is heavily involved both in ownership and control of business enterprises, especially in strategic industries. More specifically, the People's Liberation Army, or the PLA, is a major player in industry. This arrangement means that all significant business activity is bent to the will of the CCP, and Chinese investments abroad are an integral and essential element of its strategic power projection. For smaller enterprises, the right to ownership of property and business assets is a huge advantage enjoyed by Chinese citizens compared with citizens of most communist states, including the Soviet Union in the past and Cuba and North Korea to this day. State ownership has always proved disastrous for economies for two main reasons. First, it is inefficient. Central planners are never smart enough or nimble enough to anticipate, let alone keep up with, markets, so their allocation of capital resources is necessarily clumsy and unproductive. Second, ownership is a deep-seated attribute of the human nature we are endowed with by God. Therefore, private property is not evil, but a necessary precondition for us to exert our dominion over creation wisely. We are responsible for what we own, and we are motivated by the desire to better ourselves and our families by developing the property we own. With China, the CCP's strategy of allowing limited private ownership and economic independence from the government, while retaining ultimate control of industry and infrastructure, has worked so far. However, that success has been possible only because international capital markets have invested heavily in the Chinese economy and continue to underwrite its ambitions. If this stream of financial support stopped, the Chinese system of semi-independent, ultimately state-controlled industry is likely to founder, especially when individual interests start to compete with the meta-ambitions of the state. New section. Capitalism enables China's surveillance state. The true nature of the regime in Beijing is best demonstrated by the way it treats its own people. It has perfected the surveillance state, with cameras everywhere, monitoring every individual, giving it excuses to punish anyone straying from CCP loyalty. It has violated its 1997 agreement with Britain, which granted Hong Kong 50 years of relative autonomy, and it is constantly threatening Taiwan with military conquest. It has cracked down ruthlessly on the Uyghur population of the Xinjiang province, incarcerating millions of these minority Muslims in re-education camps where they are subjected to sterilization and rape and forced to renounce their faith and swear allegiance to the CCP. 
This religious repression continues a tradition started by Mao, who hated Taoism and Confucianism, the two most important philosophical bases for traditional Chinese society. Both those traditional belief systems were brutally targeted during the rise of the CCP, particularly during the Cultural Revolution between 1966 and 1976. The Catholic Church in China has faced constant interference from the state, which insists on the right to appoint or approve ecclesiastical leaders, something the Vatican under Pope Francis has appeared to compromise on. Protestant and other churches have faced constant harassment and many have been forced underground. Perhaps the most egregious and brutal policies have been directed at the indigenous Falun Gong, also known as the Falun Dafa movement, founded by Li Hongzhi in the early 1990s. With its membership reported to be in millions or tens of millions, the movement incorporates meditation, traditional Chinese Qigong practices, and a moral philosophy that stresses virtuous living. In 1999, Chinese authorities estimated Falun Gong membership at 70 million and began a crackdown, labeling the movement as a heretical cult. Tens of thousands have been arrested and imprisoned, and state authorities from the highest levels of the CCP have targeted Falun Gong members for organ harvesting for profit, an evil and gruesome practice that involves the sale of organs to customers while the donors are still alive. Many Falun Gong believers have been forced to flee their native China, and the group is currently based in the United States, from where it seeks to expose the abuses of the CCP by publishing the Epoch Times in many countries and several languages. A new section. Capitalism funds China's expanding global reach. Overseas, China is using its growing wealth to purchase influence and to extend its penetration of economies around the world. Already in place is a vast Chinese diaspora which stretches from the United States to Australia. Chinese people naturally feel affinity for their homeland and Beijing seeks to exploit this sentiment by encouraging loyalty to their traditional roots rather than to their current nationality or place of residence, and reinforcing this policy by holding their relatives hostage in China. This global network can help expand Chinese investment and trade around the world, or force Chinese living abroad into a more subversive role as agents of Beijing. China's growing wealth has meant that it can sustain a massive effort to track down Chinese dissidents and other Chinese who have fallen foul of the regime in Beijing, often on the pretext and sometimes legitimate basis that those who have fled China did so to escape prosecution for corruption. On February 4, 2021, Freedom House published a report on transnational repression, the illegal activities of various governments pursuing their citizens overseas, from torture and assassinations to intimidation and forced repatriations. Of China, the report says, and I quote, China conducts the most sophisticated, global, and comprehensive campaign of transnational repression in the world, end quote. It adds, all sold, these tactics affect millions of Chinese and minority populations from China 
in at least 36 host countries across every inhabited continent, end quote. The message to all Chinese people is clear. Criticize the government and we will track you down and punish you wherever in the world you try to hide. China also exerts tremendous pressure on corporations that are heavily invested in its economy, seeking to control the content of their public statements and social media posts about China, and, for example, censoring the movies they invest in. The danger is that the tension between free market forces and CCP totalitarianism is likely to be resolved in favor of the latter. The CCP cannot afford to grant freedom to the point where the party will no longer retain political control, and Western governments have erroneously assumed that engaging in commercial activity with the CCP would inevitably lead to it becoming more open and democratic. They are learning the hard way that this is not so. On the contrary, Communist China is wielding its economic power to press democratic states and free institutions to sacrifice their principles of independence in exchange for financial gain. Communist China is today the greatest threat to freedom and peace in the world. Its huge population, now empowered by ever-growing economic and military might, is harnessed to an ambitious expansionist program of world domination, making China a deadly force to be reckoned with. Never chosen by the people, the CCP has to maintain its grip on power by keeping control of restless minorities at home while flexing its threatening muscles on the world stage. As with the Soviet Union before it, this may well result in verbal belligerence being converted into military adventurism in the name of defending the new Chinese nationalism. China has replaced the Soviet Union as the superpower sponsor of smaller communist and socialist states, notably North Korea, Cambodia and Laos, providing it with pretexts to meddle in overseas affairs. And it has made major inroads in the developing world, especially in Africa, where governments have often foolishly accepted Chinese aid with its entangling and costly strings attached. Nevertheless, the CCP's ultimate weakness lies in its dependence on ruling by force. Its claim to be the heir to Han nationalism and the Chinese heritage in general through its authoritarian rule is a propaganda sleight of hand that works in good times only, but is unlikely to be a successful strategy over the long haul. When the economy weakens, cracks in Han's support for the CCP appear. And as China's international reach grows, its hand racism and totalitarian methods make it a global pariah that is only able to secure allies through dollar diplomacy. Because it has adopted capitalism, albeit a corrupt form, China may avoid the economic death spiral that pulled the Soviet Union to its destruction, but it cannot avoid forever the consequences of the falsehoods inherent in its flawed founding ideology and its legacy of brutal behavior. New section. China's global influence and subversion campaign. As with the many communists around the world who were attracted to Stalin as a strongman, believing that he was taking the difficult but necessary steps to build socialism, there's a growing international cadre of leftists, or simply opportunists, 
who are attracted to China's growing wealth and military power. Typically, they believe that China today is setting an example for a progressive society. For them, the attraction is not so much ideological as practical. They see in China a strong nation that has achieved remarkable economic success recently and therefore offers opportunities for them to make money for themselves. They are drawn into Beijing's orbit by China's willingness to spend vast amounts of money to curry favor and secure allegiance. Just in America alone, which is undoubtedly China's primary target for subversion and influence, the quiet spread of Beijing's influence has reached massive proportions. And while this influence has largely gone unnoticed, that has begun to change as the consequences are starting to have a serious impact on society. For example, a 2021 release of emails between Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of NIAD, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, a division of the National Institutes of Health, and academics engaged in epidemiological research reveal a strong connection between American scientists in government, nonprofits, and academia, and the CCP. Fauci became the national and to some extent international guru doling out advice concerning the COVID-19 virus that by mid-2021 had caused some 4 million deaths worldwide and over 600,000 deaths in the United States alone. The emails reveal that Fauci had all along downplayed the likely scenario that the virus originated in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, something the CCP was determined to hide from the world. Fauci was compromised because his agency had provided funding to the Wuhan lab, which was engaged in gain-of-function research, a dangerous field in which scientists tinker with animal viruses to make them better able to infect human beings. In other words, Fauci himself was implicated in being at least partially responsible for the death of millions of people. Strongly encouraged by the agents of the CCP, he chose to mislead Americans rather than admit to the truth. The Chinese read him right. He was more concerned for his own prestige and reputation than for the millions of people suffering and dying from COVID-19. A July 1, 2021 Fox News article on this issue explains that the Chinese manipulation of Fauci is part of a very extensive CCP scheme to influence and subvert the United States. The author, Joe Schofstall, explains, and I quote, China conducts numerous influence campaigns within the United States, including targeting institutes of higher learning. End quote. He continues with a quote from Brian Fitzpatrick, a member of Congress and veteran of the FBI's counterintelligence and counterterrorism departments. And I quote again, What China does, and other countries do the same, is they identify what they call the spheres of influence. China's identified five spheres of influence, essentially in the United States. It's academia, it's the media, it's big tech, it's Hollywood, and professional sports. They view those as the five influences of human behavior in American culture. Essentially, what they try to do is silence sabotage, a soft influence whole government approach 
where they nestle in and ingrain themselves in these institutions financially to make people economically dependent on them, and then they use that as a platform to get their message out, mainly through propaganda." End quote. The article points out that one of the key contacts of Fauci regarding the COVID-19 cover-up was Walter Ian Lipkin, a professor of epidemiology at Columbia University. Lipkin has had extensive contacts with senior Chinese scientists and officials and thanked Fauci in an email for publicly downplaying the possibility that the virus originated in the Wuhan lab. Lipkin has been a beneficiary of NIH grants as well as money from China. The article points out that, and I quote, Colombia has received millions in foreign funding from China. According to the College Foreign Gift and Contract Report database, which relies on universities self-reporting their foreign cash, the university has raked in at least $17.7 million from China for research facilities and professorships." End quote. The Fauci affair is the first major revelation of nefarious Chinese meddling in American affairs that has gained wide public attention. It has been treated as anomalous by much of the media, but unlike some of the other proven cases of Chinese espionage and influence peddling, the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted the life of every American and resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands of loved ones. It seems the brazen behavior of the CCP is finally starting to be noticed. So far, China has found the targets of its influence campaign easy game, especially since the beneficiaries in American academia, media, sports, the corporate world and government have faced little censure and are rarely punished at all. This record of success has made Beijing appear cocky, confident that with its billions of dollars, it can buy its way into any society. It combines the carrot of financial payoffs with a stick of intimidation. It forces companies, media groups, sporting organizations, and government bodies to tow the CCP line or face an end to the gravy train and exclusion from the lucrative Chinese market. For countries Beijing targets for its Belt and Road Initiative, the strategy is a little different. China typically combines bribes to officials in client countries with punitive clauses in the contracts it signs that enable it to take control of infrastructure projects if the client defaults on repayment of loans for the project. There is really no excuse for continued Western ignorance of China's true nature and ambition. When communism was taking hold in China decades ago, and later in the Cultural Revolution, little was known about Mao's ruthless suppression of Confucianism, Taoism, and Christianity, imitating the Soviet destruction of the Russian Orthodox Church. Recognizing that without their traditional faiths, they lack a basis for cultural exchange with the West, the CCP would now have us believe that it is the inheritor of traditional Chinese culture. Beijing is peddling this deception through a global network of state-sponsored Confucius Institutes. The atheistic CCP, with its 94 million members, has no real interest in spreading religious or spiritual principles. Its sole interest is to use traditional culture 
as a cover for CCP propaganda. In the meantime, the true face of the CCP is seen in its ruthless campaign against the Muslim Uyghurs, Christians, and Falun Gong practitioners. New section. China practices genocide. The destruction of the Uyghur population has now become outright genocide. In an April 2021 article in Foreign Policy, Peter Mattis points out, and I quote, Under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, to which both China and the United States are signatories, genocide has two parts. The first is the commission of any of the following acts, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The second part is intent. Any of those acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group would constitute genocide. Mattis concludes, I quote again, China's actions very clearly meet four out of five conditions of genocide. And remember, they only need to meet one. End quote. On June 10th, 2021, Amnesty International published a 160-page report on the CCP's systematic persecution of the Uyghurs, concluding, and I quote, The evidence Amnesty International has gathered provides a factual basis for the conclusion that the Chinese government has committed at least the following crimes against humanity, imprisonment or other severe deprivation of physical liberty in violation of fundamental rules of international law, torture, and persecution. The government's abuses are ongoing. Large numbers of people are still arbitrarily detained in Xinjiang. Moreover, the government has devoted tremendous resources to concealing the truth about its actions. It prevents millions of people living in Xinjiang from communicating freely about the situation and denies journalists and investigators meaningful access to the region. People living abroad are often unable to obtain information about family members in Xinjiang who are missing and presumed to be detained." End quote. A key strategy of the CCP is to break the Muslim faith of the Uyghurs and replace it with loyalty to the Communist Party. The tactics employed include denying the Muslims access to their scriptures, preventing them from worship and suppressing their language. Uyghurs are prisoners in vast internment camps where they are forced to suffer indoctrination in the CCP's Marxist theories. Physical torture, sleep deprivation and other forms of coercion are used to compel them to renounce their faith and pledge loyalty to the CCP. The CCP also attacks the traditional Uyghur family unit which is the center of their culture, through surveillance of family life by Han Chinese government monitors who may spend days at a time in private homes. Other inhuman practices include sterilization 
or rape of Uyghur women by Han Chinese men. New section. Marxism is antithetical to traditional Chinese faiths. Mao Zedong and his Chinese Communist Party despised Confucianism and sought to eradicate its influence from Chinese society. They labeled it backwards, counter-revolutionary and reactionary. This campaign was stepped up during the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976, when Confucian teachings were banned and Confucian scholars were tortured and killed. Worse still, the CCP did its best to destroy the Confucian foundation of Chinese society by getting children to turn on their parents and teachers in a direct repudiation of filial piety. This turned Chinese youth into inhuman monsters. Today there are only some 6 million Confucianists in a country of 1.4 billion people. However, in typical communist style, the regime in Beijing has used some of Confucius's teachings about loyalty to rulers to encourage obedience to the CCP and co-opted the sage's name for a network of Confucius institutes around the world that peddle communist propaganda within a broader program of language and cultural education. Taoism's concept of harmony between yin and yang is also directly contradicted by the Marxist dialectic which is based on conflict between opposites. Banned by the CCP, Taoism was suppressed on the mainland but flourished in Taiwan. It is now cautiously being allowed back into the mainland under the watchful eyes of the CCP, which believes that, as with Confucianism, it can play a constructive role in society and ultimately serve the interests of the party. There are an estimated 12 million Taoists worldwide. It must be remembered that all religious and philosophical movements in China are subject to the strict control of the CCP. Any freedom they enjoy is only because the party recognizes elements in them that can be appropriated to serve its interests, which include maintaining social stability and peace. After all, there is nothing in Marxist doctrine that can be used to cultivate good families or harmonious and constructive relations among people in general. Tolerating spiritual traditions is also good for propaganda purposes. It deceives the world into believing China respects spiritual traditions. New section. China crushes authentic religions. As with all communist regimes, the CCP has from its founding been dedicated to crushing or co-opting religious organizations, both Eastern and Western in origin. There are many examples of this subversion of religious bodies. In the case of China, many established Christian churches outside China have been happy to cozy up to the CCP, despite its terrible record in persecuting Christians in China. Pope Francis himself caved to the CCP's insistence that it have veto power over appointments of Catholic bishops, and the World Council of Churches, the WCC, has shunned authentic Christian groups while courting the CCP. A book that is extremely critical of the CCP, How the Spectre of Communism is Ruling Our World, traces the WCC's long-standing relationship with communist states 
and I quote, On a global scale, one organization that was infiltrated by communism in Eastern Europe was the World Council of Churches. Established in 1948, the WCC is a worldwide interchurch Christian organization. Its members include churches of various mainline forms of Christianity, representing around 590 million people from 150 different countries. It also was the first international religious organization to accept communist countries as members during the Cold War and to accept financial support from them. Based on a released KGB file from 1969, Cambridge University professor and historian Christopher Andrews wrote that during the Cold War, five KGB agents held seats on the WCC Central Committee, exerting covert influence on its policies and operations. A released KGB file from 1989 shows that these KGB-controlled agents ensured that the committee issued public communications that aligned with socialist aims. The WCC also was infiltrated by the CCP through the China Christian Council. The Council is the only official representative of Communist China in the WCC. Yet, due to monetary and other influences, the WCC has for years gone along with the CCP's interests. The General Secretary of the WCC officially visited China in early 2018 and met with several party-controlled Christian organizations, including the China Christian Council, the National Committee of Three Self-Patriotic Movement of the Protestant Churches in China, and the State Administration for Religious Affairs. In China, the number of members of non-official Christian groups, that is underground churches, is far greater than the official ones. Yet WCC delegates didn't arrange to meet with any non-official Christian groups in order to avoid friction with Beijing." End quote. Christianity and other faiths should lead the world in rejecting the communist seduction but all too many religious bodies have believed that they can make common cause with communism, turning their other cheek towards the greatest perpetrator of evil over the past century. The result has been that these organizations are used by the communists to cover their own evil behavior, while authentic believers suffer under totalitarian oppression. New section. The CPUSA now serves CCP interests. True to its history of obsequious subservience to international communism, the Communist Party USA realigned itself with Beijing after Moscow ceased to lead the worldwide communist movement. A much reduced American party, probably with about 5,000 members in 2020, in 2018 sent a delegation to China led by Chairman John Bachtel, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Marx's birthday. Those returning from this and similar CPUSA missions to China reported how impressed they were with Chinese communism and offered enthusiastic support for the CCP. The CPUSA website carries a January 6, 2020 article by Norman Markowitz describing his visit to China 
for a conference on Marxism and socialism in the 21st century. He reports that most scholars from capitalist countries use Marxist analysis to show the continued destructive effects of capitalist policy on both the physical environment and the education and social welfare of the people throughout the capitalist world. My own presentation dealt with capitalist responses to China's new direction and I also gave two presentations to undergraduate and graduate students on recycling of Cold War ideology toward the People's Republic of China at the Central Wuhan Normal School and the American Way of Imperialism at the School of Marxism of Wuhan University. Both led to interesting questions and lively discussions." End quote. He concludes with this stirring comment, I quote, as the People's Republic of China seeks greater engagement with communist parties and socialist and anti-imperialist movements, we should welcome those engagements and build upon them as we work for a shared socialist future for humanity." End quote. As we saw in the mid-20th century, American communist loyalty to communism and communist states trumps their loyalty to their own nation making the CPUSA a treasonous organization. For its adherents, the Soviet Union used to be the model of a virtuous nation, and America an evil capitalist state. Today, communist China is the model, a place where American communists give lectures on topics like the American way of imperialism. The American communists no longer field their own candidates for president, and John Bachtel told Gorka that he had enthusiastically campaigned for Barack Obama's two presidential bids. This demonstrates that the Democratic Party has now moved so far left that American Marxists are completely comfortable in its fold. For China to have such an eager ally in one of America's two dominant political parties is indeed a triumph for communism and signifies that China is a much more dangerous foe to America than the Soviet Union ever was. New section. Why China is so dangerous. In this chapter we have discussed some of the salient characteristics of communist China, both in terms of its bloody history and in its current oppression of minorities and projection of power internationally. But we should not let its many unpleasant features distract us from the reality of its strength. With 1.4 billion people, China is still the country with the largest population in the world, although a declining birth rate would cause it to slip from that perch. China has a massive diaspora of some 40 million people in 130 countries. Many of these people identify as Chinese in a way that enables Beijing to use them as agents of influence or spies. With rapid growth fueled by massive foreign investments, China has the second largest economy in the world and is on track to overtake America. China's ambition is to achieve an economy double or triple the size of America's by 2049 and to increase the gap from there. Much of the Chinese population is on board with the government's project to restore the nation's dignity and to make it the dominant country in the world. China has stolen or copied or created the technology to accomplish its goal, beginning with a massive build-up and modernization of its military power. 
All these aspects of China's current strength take on new significance in the light of its national ambition to achieve what it considers its destiny. That destiny is world domination, and it is the object of what the Chinese call the 100-year marathon. A new section, China's 100-year marathon. In 2015, Michael Pillsbury published a book with the title, The 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. In it, he reveals China's long-term strategic thinking and the motivation behind it. Essentially, the CCP considers 1949 as a pivotal year in the history of the world. It was in that year that the People's Republic of China was established after the CCP victory in the Long Civil War. The party teaches that from 1949, China finally began its return to global prestige and dignity after a century of humiliation that had begun with the Opium War of 1839 to 1842, in which Britain had defeated China, reducing it to the status of a second-rate nation. For the next century, China would be subjected to invasion and occupation and never rose above being a minor player in world affairs. The 100-year marathon is the CCP strategy to gain global supremacy by 2049. By that time, it plans to have surpassed America in every significant area, so that China no longer has to look up to any other power. This overarching ambition explains the regime's willingness to do literally anything to achieve its goal. For example, Mao believed that his great leap forward would in the span of a few years raise China's steel production to the level of America's. That it failed miserably was a setback. That it cost tens of millions of lives was incidental. As we've noted several times, the communist system of centralized planning never works well, and the Great Leap Forward was only one in a long series of CCP economic failures. The Chinese marathon was not making progress. This all started to change when the United States dropped its recognition of Taiwan in favor of the mainland government on January 1, 1979. This coincided with Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms of 1978, which allowed private ownership of property and businesses in a socialist market economy. Normalized relations facilitated investment and trade, and in 2001, China was admitted to the World Trade Organization as a developing country that could now enjoy favorable trade terms. The capitalist scramble for China was on, and the economy grew by leaps and bounds, freed from the chokehold of centralized planning. Most China experts in the West considered all this development a good thing. Their assumption was that if China was brought into the world community of international trade, the communist government would see the benefits of democratic government and moderate its policies to make them compatible with those of other industrialized nations. It's only now that some of these experts, including Pillsbury, realize that America and other developed countries have been played by Beijing. The CCP has no intention of becoming just another modern state. 
The actual long-term objectives and strategies of the CCP are revealed in nine core principles of the 100-year marathon as identified by Pillsbury, and I quote, 1. Induce complacency to avoid alerting your opponent. 2. Manipulate your opponent's advisors. 3. Be patient for decades or longer to achieve victory. 4. Steal your opponent's ideas and technology for strategic purposes. 5. Military might is not the critical factor for winning a long-term competition. 6. Recognize that the hegemon will take extreme, even reckless action to retain its dominant position. 7. Never lose sight of she that is deceiving others into doing your bidding for you and waiting for the point of maximum opportunity to strike. 8. Establish and employ metrics for measuring your status relative to other potential challengers. 9. Always be vigilant to avoid being encircled or deceived by others. Not listed here is another central idea from China's ancient past, namely that the world order is hierarchical. This means that there can be only one supreme power, one superpower. That country is now America, which is why China is so determined to surpass the United States. In line with this policy of keeping its real intentions hidden, this is not its commonly stated public policy. And I quote, China's leaders claim to want a multipolar world in which the United States will be first among equals. Put differently, they do not want to ask the weight of the emperor's cauldrons. In truth, however, they see a multipolar world as merely a strategic waypoint en route to a new global hierarchy in which China is alone at the top. The Chinese term for this new order is Datong, often mistranslated by Western scholars as Commonwealth or an era of harmony. However, Datong is better translated as an era of unipolar dominance. Since 2005, Chinese leaders have spoken at the United Nations and other public forums of their supposed vision of this kind of harmonious world. End quote. That the CCP took most of these ideas from books based on insights from The Art of War by Sun Tzu and other sources that explain winning and losing strategies employed in the Warring States era of ancient China, that was 475 to 221 BC, does not diminish their potency. On the contrary, using these ideas has enabled the CCP to present itself as the authentic representative of Chinese traditions. Furthermore, while many of these stratagems are considered dishonorable or criminal in many other countries, they are perfectly consistent with Marxist ideology, which holds that the end always justifies the means. This explains why the CCP has so far managed to stay in power without too many challenges from the people. The party has convinced many Chinese that its leadership is the key to both preserving ancient Chinese traditions and restoring China's prestige in the world. Thus the Chinese government promises to make China great again by employing a special brand of state-controlled capitalism, combined with strategies drawn from China's distant past, all overseen by a heavy-handed dictatorship.
a new section, the marathon picks up speed. Beginning with the new millennium, China's fortunes have greatly improved and its economy has expanded dramatically. The CCP has become buoyant and on the June 1st, 2021 centennial of its founding, it let the world know how it felt. Standing at a podium emblazoned with a communist hammer and sickle above the portrait of Mao that always looks out over Tiananmen Square from the Gate of Heavenly Peace, President for Life Xi Jinping, dressed in a Mao suit, spoke to a crowd of 70,000. As reported by The Guardian, and I quote, he praised the ruling party for lifting China out of poverty and humiliation and pledged to expand China's military and influence, end quote. Xi continued, and I quote, we will not accept sanctimonious preaching from those who feel they have the right to lecture us. We have never bullied, oppressed, or subjugated the people of any other country, and we never will. By the same token, we will never allow anyone to bully, oppress, or subjugate China. Anyone who tries will find themselves on a collision course with a steel wall forged by 1.4 billion people." End quote. This is classic communist propaganda with a Chinese twist, or as the CCP would itself say, it is socialism with Chinese characteristics. It reveals a Cain-type attitude of victimhood and resentment while claiming to be innocent of ever committing an offense. Tell that to the Tibetans, tell that to the Uyghurs or the Falun Gong, tell that to the people of Hong Kong and Taiwan. Tell that to the 80 million Chinese who have died cruel deaths at the hands of the CCP. China claims to have peaceful intentions and, no doubt, would rather conquer the world through the peaceful surrender of the United States and all other powers. But, as we've now heard from China's new Mao, if the rest of the world doesn't get with Beijing's peaceful program, it can expect to be buried along with those 8 million who have already lost their lives to the Chinese Communist cause. Typical of communism's bullying behavior, China has done its utmost to catch up with the West by devious means. It has forced investors seeking access to its vast markets to share their technology with Chinese partners, which are often directly or indirectly the CCP or the PLA. When unable to secure proprietary information that way, it has resorted to international corporate espionage to steal the blueprints of a modern economy, its science, technology, and military capabilities. In the meantime, cynical Chinese propagandists have tried to exploit issues of racism and other social problems in the West to intimidate democratic governments into remaining silent over the far more egregious behavior by China itself, such as its Uyghur genocide and outright repression of the Falun Gong and other religious organizations. A new section, Liberating Communist China. As discussed in Chapter 10, at its root, Marxism is an ideology of aggrievement, jealousy, resentment, and vengeance. Xi's aggressive speech could have been made by any of the Soviet leaders. However, for all its constant bluster, the Soviet Union knew that the West was far ahead in science and technology 
and offered a far higher standard of living to its people than did the communist bloc countries. Communist China, too, was long in a similar position. However, unlike the USSR, China has been successful in convincing the West that it is not an enemy and that it is a worthy business partner, thereby attracting the economic engagement the Soviets long wanted but never secured. Communist China is also a nation of bluster, but thanks to its economy and military power, it has to be taken seriously and recognized as a real threat to a free and peaceful world. Communists like to think of themselves as on the side of history, thus justifying their dictatorship of the proletariat. The CCP has been able to marry this concept with the traditional Chinese concept of the mandate of heaven, such that Xi Jinping believes he is now ruling the People's Republic with the full blessing of heaven and history. China does have a great history with a rich culture and several early contributions to human progress, such as the inventions of paper and gunpowder. It is also the birthplace of two of Asia's most important spiritual traditions, Taoism and Confucianism. But communism is not a natural progression from that past. It is a total rejection of traditional Chinese virtue. As such, it can never be a successful vehicle to restore China's true greatness. The other problem the Chinese Communist Party faces is the fact that Marxist Maoism offers nothing of lasting value to the Chinese people or the world. Totalitarianism is hardly a system of government sought out by people longing for a better life, and even an economy that provides opportunities for wealth creation is still no substitute for a free society in which individuals can pursue their own interests and worship according to their own beliefs. As we have noted, the principles of how to deal with communist China are the same as for all other totalitarian regimes. There can be no detente, no appeasement. The West must be absolutely resolute in its condemnation of the inhuman practices of the CCP at home and its rogue and ruthless behavior overseas. The West, and America in particular, must maintain a deterrent military supremacy, preventing China from engaging in any sort of adventurism and circumventing the spread of its pernicious influence around the world. At the same time, there's no need to downplay China's global importance. Rather, it is up to the industrialized nations to realize that they are not just dealing with a large and lucrative market, but with an ideological enemy that is willing to do anything to gain global ascendancy. We must not forget that China's current success has been achieved by nefarious means, including the theft of intellectual property and the bullying of anyone who engages in business with them. Ultimately, we have to believe in the Chinese people and not in the CCP. The majority of Chinese people may accept the CCP for the time being because it has given them greater prosperity than before. But the destruction of their traditional culture means that they now lack the values that actually make life worth living. No communist state has ever been successful in providing a truly good life for its citizens, and the shiny skyscrapers in Shanghai are a poor disguise for the reality of life under Chinese communism. 
Those of us in free nations need to always remember this and to work diligently towards the liberation of the people of China from the tyranny of the Chinese Communist Party. End of chapter.